chapter 4. In case you don't recognize the guy coming out of the drum booth, uh, that's Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> As you go to Mark 4, let me take a minute and thank uh, not only Jeremy, but uh, it's Veterans Day weekend, and um, I know that we have some veterans uh, that are part of our church. We have veterans that are part of your families, and um, you know we wouldn't be here uh, tonight in terms of out in the open and putting a sign out front and that kind of stuff uh, if they weren't uh, the kind of people who would go and uh, defend us and defend our rights to be able to do that. And so we're very grateful to all of you, whether you are a veteran or you're related to a veteran or uh, you just know one, whatever. Uh, very, very thankful for their service and sacrifices that they make and their families. Um, we have been in the book of Mark uh, for a little while now, uh, kind of off and on. And we get to a place tonight in Mark 4 that I've been excited to get to. Um, this is one of those stories that if, if you have old church roots, like if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, you might remember the, uh, the super high-tech days where stories like this would be like, uh, it'd be like a piece of felt, you know, and, like put it, and it would touch to another piece of felt and it'd make like a picture, and you're like, whoa, how's it sticking up there? And that's how a lot of us learn Bible stories, and this is one of those stories that you may have heard before um, where Jesus calms a storm, and I've been waiting for this one. I'm excited about it. Uh, Let's read it together, starting verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across uh, to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And when they woke him, they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there uh, there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So his disciples, they had been with him for a little while now. They had seen him do some pretty impressive things. Um, and, then, and so they go out on a boat and get into some trouble. And what I'd like to do is just kind of break this story into sort of five, five movements that happen, and it's one of my one of my favorite ways uh, to teach is really just to let's just go through it and just pull some things out of it instead of um, there won't be like a lot of organized uh, points or anything like that. It'll just kind of be let's just see what the story has to say to us. Um, and the five movements: the first movement is that the disciples get into some trouble. All right, verse thirty-seven: uh, great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Okay, so this part of the world, uh, they, they were not water people. Like, um, I, I worked uh, centrifuge in Panama City Beach one summer, uh, right after college. And so it was a whole summer on the beach. And we had kids, uh, youth groups and stuff come from all over the place. And I, it was fun because you would have kids who would show up from different parts of the country who had never been to the beach before. Like they had never seen the ocean. 
And so, like, that's all they wanted to do was, like, lay their eyes on, like, something that wasn't, like, a lake or a river or a, a creek or whatever. And so uh, they would come down and they would be like, oh, my gosh, that's the, that's, can't believe I'm looking at the Atlantic, you know. And you're like, no, that's, that's the Gulf of Mexico. But you just, you pretend it's a, it's a vast ocean as well if you want to. Uh, they weren't always great at geography. But they, um, they were excited because they got to put their feet in sand and they got to look at this big piece of water and they had just never seen it before. And it was so strange to a lot of us that someone would be 16, 17 years old and have never gone to the beach. But it's because we have fairly easy access to big bodies of water and they don't. It's the same reason why we freak out when we see a mountain, you know. Like, we see some bigger than, like, the Indian mounds. We're like, oh, my gosh, it's a mountain, you know. And they're like, no, dude, that's just a pile of dirt. But that's, you call it a mountain if you want to. But we freak out about mountains. There was a group from Colorado, uh, a youth group in Colorado that came, and they were just freaking out over the ocean. And we were trying to explain to them how beautiful mountains are. And they're like, what? Like, really? And so we were just speaking different languages. But um, they, like, this group, uh, like, this part of the world, they were not big into water. They didn't, they didn't deal with it very, very often. You had the Dead Sea, which is not very exciting. You had the Sea of Galilee, which is really big. Um, and you had some rivers and stuff. But for the most part, like, they, were, they were land people. You know? Israel had an army. They didn't have a navy because there's just not a lot of water around. So water was very scary to them. And especially the Sea of Galilee because it's, kind of, it's surrounded by mountains. And so these, these winds would come in and they would come over those mountains and then just tear down the, side, tear down the side of the mountain right into the water. So these big, violent storms would come up out of nowhere. And so the sea, the Sea of Galilee, was a place that people died. And so fishermen were considered like super brave and kind of crazy because uh, this was just not a, not a safe place to be. And a situation like this was almost certain death because as the water starts to fill into the boats... Uh, these were not necessarily the best-made boats in the world. And so it was a, just a very troubling situation. So the first thing that happens is that they get into trouble. And for them, this was, this was a very, very panicky, bad scenario that was going to lead to something really, really dark. Um, so that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is the disciples decide to wake up Jesus. Verse 38. But he, being Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, first of all, the next time you take a nap, you just be like, I'm just going to imitate my rabbi. I'm going to lay down, I'm going to take a nap. Because Jesus took naps, and I'm going to take naps, and naps are good. And I'm just doing what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? Take a nap. So, there's your validation next time you want to take a nap. Jesus take a nap. He is obviously very tired. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat. Sometimes when it's really, really chill and peaceful, it's a great place for a nap. But in a windstorm, probably not the, the nice, you know, safe place to take a nap. But he is obviously very tired. He's down in the stern. He's, down kind of like, he's like down like below a little bit. And he, there's a cushion there. And he's like, I'm going to make use of this cushion. I'm going to snuggle up with it. And so he's probably there with his pillow. And he's like doing his thing. And the storm comes. And they're in trouble. And they decide to wake him up. And this verse, like the first part of the verse, like look, look back at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, this could have gone so much better. You know, like this, this was a dumb, dumb thing to say. I mean, here's Jesus. You've watched him 
uh, heal people. You've watched him cast out demons. You've heard him teach. Like you've seen all this firsthand. And you're like, oh man, our boat is sinking. It is filling up with water. This is certain death. There's nothing we can do. Let's wake Jesus up and do what? Blame him? (laughs) You know? Turn on him? Point the finger at him? It could have gone so much better. But what do they say? They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Instead of turning to him for help, they just pointed the finger at him. He's the only one in the whole boat that could do anything about it. And they wake him up and they blame him. Not necessarily like this is your fault. It's deeper than that. And I was thinking, I was looking at that this week, and, and as I read through it, I, just, I, felt like, I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, doesn't does that sound familiar? The first thing that happens, they get into trouble. second thing that happens, they wake up Jesus, and they express their frustration with him. You know? I just felt like the Spirit was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty common these days, isn't it? I started thinking about it. I was like, yeah, you know, it, it, it is. It is common. It is common to, um, to express our frustration to God. And, and I'm not talking about, like, seeking understanding. I'm not talking about being, like, emotionally, like, vulnerable and honest with Him. I'm not talking about the kind of prayers that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, you know, where, where He is, uh, is pleading with God. Uh, not the not the his statements from the cross, you know, where he's, you know, God, why have you forsaken me? I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about like something else because when they say, "Do you not care that we are perishing?" That's not attacking his action. That's attacking his character. It's it's deeper. It's deeper than that. You know, if they had woke him up and say, "Dude, grab a bucket," <laughs> like we need you, that'd be a little different. They're like, teacher, like, uh, there's a bunch of things they could have said. But they said, why don't you care about us? That, that is like a penetrating to the heart kind of thing. And it sounds like exactly what a, a young disciple would say. They haven't, they haven't matured in their faith very much. Like they've, been, they've been following him. They've been seeing all these things, but they, aren't, they have not transformed very much yet. This is exactly what young disciples should say. Get into trouble. God, why don't you care about me anymore? That would be very typical. And so if you are someone who has... Uh, recently come to know Jesus as your Savior and you're learning to follow Him and that kind of stuff, then that, that, like, this is something that should naturally happen. But if, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and this is still your default um, reaction to troubling situations in your life, then you need to learn from these guys. We need to learn from this story. I'm not pointing the finger at any of you. I'm pointing the finger at myself as well. That it's very easy for us. And there's something about the day that we live in that, that feeds into it. And you probably know exactly what I'm going to say. I'm not trying to 
Getting all crazy, but the information age has kind of like messed with us a little bit, you know? Like there the fact that we have so much information at our fingertips and we have so much information coming our way kind of seems like we've become entitled to just knowing everything all the time. Maybe not you, maybe not you, maybe not you, but maybe some of us. So when trouble happens and, and there's this mysterious situation, there's a part of us that's like, God, where, where are you in this? I, I, I want to see you. I want to understand. I believe that you're at work, but I, I'm struggling to see it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, God, why don't you care about my life? God, why are you, why have you, uh, like, you know what I mean? It's, why are you walking away from me? Why, why have you abandoned me? But not in the Jesus on the cross way. It's, a, it's in a, I don't think your character is, is really who you say you are kind of way. It's more Adam and Eve in the garden than it is Jesus on the cross. And that's, that's hard. You know, that's hard to swallow, to admit that sometimes we can default to that. But there's a little bit of Adam and Eve in the garden that's in us. There's a, there is a, a, a rebellion that's in us. There's a part of us that very easily believes that God isn't who he says he is. That God's holding out on us. That this is all just, just a big trick, you know. We carry that with us. Now, it's been crucified. It's bleeding out. But there is a part of us that we carry that's always kind of like trusting God, but maybe not really trusting God. Because in our information age, we have gotten to where we don't really trust anybody. If, someone's, if someone is withholding something from you, it's because they like, oh, there's something weird going on. So we get at arm's length with people. We get at arm's length with, with uh, a lot of different kinds of things. And then God becomes another one of those where we're like, yeah, because of, I'm in this trouble and you're not, you don't seem to care about me very much, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of keep you over here. You tell me why you don't care this is happening to me. And if I'm okay with your answer, then I'll let you in. And it's because we have, like our culture is very entitled. Now you might not be, in, this might not be apply to you. And I hope that God just whispers to you like, hey, you're, you're doing good on this. But I believe that some of us in the room need, need to feel the weight of that conviction of being entitled. That when trouble happens for us, and we, uh, I mean, we, you know, God never sleeps, so we, would, we won't ever wake Jesus up. But let's, I'll just use that because it's in the story. When you're like, hey, I'm going to wake Jesus up in prayer, and you, it's time to say something to him, sometimes maybe the spirit of what you're saying is a lot like what they're saying. Why don't you care this is happening? Another thing that has, has led to this is, is really just like the Internet, you know, but whether it's blogging or social media and those kinds of things, which have both of the, those things have brought, really brought like a lot of great things into our lives, but it's also uh, has the potential to bring some like difficult things. And so, when we exist in a world where you know, like I was thinking about this today, like I was just trying to remember at what point in my life do I did I become convinced that people had uh, people cared what I thought about anything? You know, like growing up, I was trying to think like when I was a kid, did anyone ever ask my opinion about anything? Like no. Like, unless it was in, like, a, like an assignment for school. You know, it was like, write an opinion essay on this thing. Like, oh, I have to have an opinion, you know? I guess. But me and my friends, we didn't sit around and be like, so, what do you think about this social issue, you know? I was like, uh, 
It's stupid. I don't know. I don't know. What else do you want me to say? Never, never, ever grew up thinking that anyone would want to know my opinion because no one ever asked me, ever, ever, ever. Now, we have the capability to have our own press conferences every day. Right now. Some of you may have your own press conference during this sermon. And I'll go back and check the timeline later. But, I mean, like, politicians and celebrities and all these kind of people, they don't have to have a press conference anymore. Side note, like, speaking at a press conference is on my bucket list. Like, I, when, I don't understand, like, football coaches who don't want to do the presser afterwards. I'm like, that would be, I would love that. <laughs> if a preacher's doing a press conference, it's because something really bad just happened. So uh, maybe I should not want to do that, but... But they don't even have really like press conferences anymore, you know. Like you, like all these people, you just put something on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. You just put something on Facebook, however you want to do it. And so all this, all this is going out there. And what that's done is like, hey, everyone can have their own press conference. Everyone can have their own platform. So now we all have these platforms, and these platforms are driven by approval. And uh, the people who don't approve just either. They either troll you or they eventually quit following you. So you narrow down to only people who champion you. And it kind, of, it kind of can build this thing in us where we kind of have our own little kingdom. We have our own little press conferences, our own little platform, and we're kind of doing our thing. And it kind of puffs us up a little bit. And I think that, it, that all those things can bring a tremendous amount of good to the world. So please don't hear me raining on that parade. But... There are times when it shapes our mindset into, into the, the same kind of thing, again, going back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were like, you know, uh, I'm pretty smart. i got some pretty good ideas. I kind of know how to run this garden. And so the, the temptation was to believe the lie that God isn't who he says he is, and then he's holding out on them. And they probably started to think about it a little bit. You know how, what makes me think that that was how their thoughts went? It's because that's how my thoughts go, too. I'm like, man, here's God holding the universe together, and uh, I, I think he can just do that, and I can kind of do my own, I kind of handle my own little kingdom over here, do my own press conferences, tell people my own opinions about things. Uh, you know, I can send uh, a message to all, the, all my followers out there, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and what happens is if I, get, if I get lost in that little world, when trouble happens, then God just becomes another another one of those negative, like, presences in my life. And I say, why don't you care that this is happening to me? Everybody thinks I'm awesome. Everybody thinks I'm so smart. Everybody thinks I'm so free. Everybody thinks I'm so this and this and this. And, and so we, get, we can get very caught up in that. And what is happening, if we're not careful, is that, that that part of Adam and Eve that we carry, that looks at the character of God and says, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure about you. And we start to tell him, and tell him, and tell him, and tell him. That leads to death. I'm not talking about like, you're not going to heaven anymore, you're going to hell kind of death. I'm talking about like, we're, we're people who he has made alive, but we're living like we are dead. Like we used to live. And, and that is concerning to me, pastorally. It's concerning to me, as a disciple, it's concerning to me as a son of the king. It's concerning to me when I look in the mirror of how easily I fall into that. And I hear it and I see it. And so when I read this story and the disciples, they, it's like, oh man, we're in trouble. Let's go wake up Jesus and 
point the finger at him. I was like, oh man, that so, feels so familiar. Because I do that, I've done that, and I don't want to do that. You know, like that's not what I, I don't want to be that disciple. I don't want to be the one who wakes up Jesus and points the finger at him. I want to be the one that wakes him up and says, if you don't help us, we, will, we have no other choice. Like you, you're it. I don't know what to do. We need you. What if that verse had just been gone differently? What if they had gotten into trouble and they woke up Jesus and they said something else? <laughs> you know, But they didn't. So, we have to learn from them. It's part of why this is in here. We're supposed to look at them and not judge them, but say, ooh, I don't want to be that. He was their only hope, yet they blamed him. So, first movement, the disciples get into trouble. Second movement, they wake him up. Third thing, verse 39, is that Jesus takes care of the problem. Verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. I love this because, you know, like, so Jesus gets up, and he's probably, you know, probably like kind of puffy face, probably got some creases from the pillow on him. You're like, oh, what's, what? Did you really just point the finger at me for this? Did you really question my character? Instead of retaliating, though, he just takes care of it. He, I don't, I don't, he's not like us, you know. He didn't get defensive. He didn't whatever. He's like, all right, let me take care of the problem. So he takes care of the problem, even though they were turning on him. He does what is best for him. And he only, he just had to talk to it. I love that part. You know. He wasn't like, oh, I need the magic wand, and let me look up the right spell, you know, or anything like that. No, he just tells it. Peace, be still. The wind stops, and the seas become calm. He just takes care of the problem. He doesn't look at them and say, well, boys, uh, you better get your hearts right. You better rethink what you just said to me. You better leave me alone. I'm tired. He doesn't do any of that stuff that maybe we would do or maybe we've had done to us when we were in trouble and we reached out for help. He just graciously... Powerfully, perfectly, shows them what mercy looks like. When you hear the word mercy, you should think of pain and trouble. God reaches into the pain and the trouble. That's what he does for them. So that's the third thing. He just takes care of it. Just the power of his speech alone brings peace and stillness to the wind, to the waters. Then the fourth thing he does, he just took care of the problem. Now he takes care of the disciples. Verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's interesting that that word afraid is the same word from 2 Timothy 1.7. Where it says God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. 
It's the same root word, and that word is associated with uh, cowardice. If you read the message uh, paraphrase of this story, it says, uh, why are you being such cowards? So when Jesus takes care of the disciples, like he wasn't like, oh, it's okay, baby, give me a hug. You know? It's okay, it's all better. He's like, what, what's up with the cowards? You know? What? I'm confused. You don't, you don't have any faith? You know? Are you still not trusting? Have you not seen enough of God's power on display? Have you not heard... Have you not heard me teach and cast out demons and heal people? Is this not, like, are you not convinced? Are you not entertained? Like, what's the deal? Like, why, where does this cowardice come from? Do you, do you know who's with you? Do you know who's asleep in the, in the boat? And I love that that's really all he said to him, you know. He just asked him some rhetorical questions. And that was exactly what they needed. Like, they, they needed to be rescued from trouble, but then Jesus is like, yeah, here, now here's this really teachable moment, so let me sort of put things into perspective for you. What you guys just did, when you questioned my character, uh, that's what cowards do. Adam and Eve were cowards. They were running, they were running away. Because they were afraid. They were afraid that God was a liar. They were afraid that his character wasn't what he thought they were. They were there was fear in that decision, in that rebellion. And there's fear in their lives, not so much about death, but in a weird way they were afraid that maybe Jesus couldn't fix this. I think that's kind of between the lines here. But regardless, he just told him what, told him what was true. He rebuked them, but he didn't. We we have a weird connotation with that word. He he set them right side up. He says, "I'm going to tell you what's true here is that you are cowards, and you don't have faith." The implication being, God Himself is just taking a nap in the boat. God Himself is that's who you needed. You should have woke me up and said, "Jesus, we need your help." Instead, you question my, ca- my character. So notice that I still took care of you, and I love you enough to tell you the truth. And in the last movement, verse 41, so the disciples were just in awe. Verse 41, they were filled with great fear. But that word fear, that's not fear like the coward fear. That fear is the like reverent, awesome what is what is happening? Who is this person? Kind of fear. It's one of those times when the translation into English is kind of strange. So really you could say, and they were filled with, with great awe. They were stunned and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, they're like, okay, we've seen him cast out the demons. We've seen him heal people. We've heard him teach. We've seen his life, but... I mean, he told the wind to, to stop, and it did. It's like, who can do that? 
you can maybe explain away some of the demonic things or even some of the healing things. Maybe there's some of that kind of stuff. Maybe they weren't impressed enough or whatever, but they've never seen someone look at nature and speak to it, and nature has to submit. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is Jesus, uh, he's been showing his authority over the demonic. He's been showing his authority over the, the brokenness of our bodies. He's been showing his authority over the, the, the false teachers and all those kind of things. He's been showing all this authority. And now he's like, I'm going to show you my authority over, over the broken creation around you. That everything has to submit to me. That's the point of the story. The reason why they were in awe, one, was they'd never seen that before. But also, I wonder if they were like, man, if, if he can do that, can he do any? I mean, is it pretty much he can do anything? Is that the conclusion? That's the application point for us as well. It's not only his authority over creation, but if he can, if he can speak and in in nature has to obey... He can speak and the demons have to obey. He can speak and our like like the unexplainable things that are going on like have to be in submission to him. Then do you think he can speak into the mess of your life and bring authority and power and goodness and guidance? Do you think that that is a possibility? You know, this story gets gets beaten up in a lot of seminary classes because uh, the, a lot of times you hear this preached as like, Jesus can calm the storms of your life. And I remember, I, I mean, and like several times, maybe, maybe a dozen times over, over the, my time at seminary, I heard them take this story and they would say, if you've ever taught it that way, you've taught it wrong. Because they were real hung up on uh, you know, certain things about the scriptures that, that were good. You know, they would say, like, if you ever taught it that way, it's wrong. But... I'm sitting there thinking, wait, but does he not calm the storms out of my life? <laughs> like, isn't the point here, look at his authority over nature, and then, and then for us to, like, drag that into our lives? And so, so do, does this story mean that we can only pray for him to do crazy stuff during hurricanes? Or can we, like, maybe be like, man, if you can do that, then you can certainly take care of the chaotic whatever that's going on inside of me right now. You know, like, can it be both? I think it can. The primary point of the story, Jesus has authority over nature. The secondary point is he has the same authority and power in your life, in my life, in our church, and in every church. And so that's who he is. That's who is with us and among us. So instead of pointing the finger at him or blaming him or questioning his character or acting like a coward... Uh, in the times when I like when something is going on and I'm like, all right, I, where's I got to turn to the Lord? I'm not going to wake him up and say, why don't you care? I'm going to look to him and say, I, I need your help. I know that you care. It may feel like you don't care. That's just my feelings. My faith is not ba- based on my feelings. My faith, my faith is based on you and who you are and what you have done. And I look at this book and I see, I see myself in those disciples, even though I've walked with them for a long time. And I don't want that to be the story of my life, and I bet you don't either. None of us want to be the disciples that went to wake him up, and that's the quote from us. 
We want to be the disciples who wake him up and we're like, I know you're my only source of help and strength. And I'm looking to you and I'm begging you. I'm in trouble. And he'll help. That's what he did. He helped him. He took, I mean, he, in this case, he took care of the situation and he told him the truth in a loving but confronting kind of way. In our lives, he doesn't always fix the situation, but he's always there to meet us with what we need. His presence is full. His grace is sufficient. His love doesn't have an end. And whatever is going on in your life, whatever's going on in your marriage or your family, at work, with your friends, I mean, just on and on and on and on. If he can tell the winds to calm down and they have to listen to him, then he's worth us looking to him and saying, I need your help. And so they wanted to know, why don't you care? And then at the end of the day, they had to be like, man, he, not only does he care, but look at who cares. Look at the one. Look at our caregiver. How amazing he is. So wherever it reaches into your life, learn from these disciples. I think if they were like here giving a testimony, they would say, hey, let me tell you about the dumbest thing I ever said to Jesus. <laughs> Please don't, don't do that. I think they want us to learn from him, and I think that Jesus wants us to learn as well. Mark was buddies with Peter, and that's where a lot of this comes from. And we don't know who it was that said it. I always wonder if it was Peter. And what happened the, the next time they were in a boat and the winds got crazy? You know, What happened the next time? What happened the next time? Did they learn from it? I don't know. But we We can. So let's stand together. You, uh, you know how this fits into your life. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, we, are, uh, we know that you are not asleep ever. That that was unique. Uh, to your time here on earth, and now that you are at the right hand of the Father, seated far above all uh, rule and authority, above every name that can be named, that you never sleep or slumber, and you live to make intercession for us, that you are praying for us. And as we pray, our prayers go through you and to the Father, and so we don't have to wake you up. You're always with us and ready. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be the disciples that wake you up and say something goofy like that. We want to be the ones that are quick to recognize who it is that's with us in the boat. That's what they failed to do. They failed to recognize who it was that was with them. We will not make that mistake. And so we want to drag this this story into our lives and apply it to what we're facing. And I humbly ask that you would help everyone here to do that. That with the word, that stillness and peace can come in chaotic ways. If you have authority over nature, you have authority over us, over all things, whatever it is that we face. And so we bring it to you. 
Thankful that you love those disciples enough to not tell them to go get their their uh, theology straight before they came to you. You took them just like they were. You, you took care of their needs. You loved them enough to tell them the truth, and they were stunned. And that's us. So wherever this fits in, and help us to be good stewards of the things you want to teach us through this passage, through these truths. We love you. We pray this in your name. Our communion is open. If you um, if you want to say yes to Jesus, He's the one that's He's offering Himself to you, His grace, His body, His blood. Um, that's that's the step toward this. So, if uh, if you're feeling the need to just confess and repent, uh, Jesus is saying yes to that. Uh, if there's something that's massive that's going on in your life. Uh, you want to come, you want to kneel and pray, this this front area is open. Chase is serving communion. Uh, it's the You rip the bread, you dip it in the juice. Um, that's how we do it here. But you're welcome in our communion line. It's not only for members or anything like that. Uh, if you want to say yes to Jesus, he's saying yes to you. We'll sing, and there's all these different responses will be going on around the room. But let's just take these closing moments and be good stewards of this time before we bless each other and go and life kind of kicks back in. uh, Let's be faithful of what he's stirring in us tonight. So the table is open. You come and respond as you're ready.